Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 22nd, 2010, and my guest is Robert Service, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and a Fellow of St. Anthony's College, Oxford. He is the author of many books, including biographies of Stalin, Lenin, and Trotsky. Bob, welcome to Econ Talk. Nice to be with you. Our subject today is Trotsky, an elusive figure for many of us in the West. Many of our listeners probably know he was involved in the Russian Revolution of October 1917, that he eventually broke with Stalin and was exiled and later murdered on Stalin's orders. But that was about it for me until I read your book, which is a vivid portrait of the man and the events that he was so influential uh, in in being part of. Tell us about him. What kind of a man was he, and what was his impact? Well, Trotsky, I think, by any standards, was a really remarkable man. He was uh, a committed revolutionary from his late teens onwards. Uh, He had a whole basket of talents. Uh, He recognized very early on he really was a great orator in the making and he worked at being an orator he worked at his public speaking at a time when most of his party comrades uh, didn't think that was a great asset to have but he knew well in advance of any revolutionary upheaval that speaking in public to big mass audiences was going to be important the other great talent he had was as a writer I think by any standards he was one of the great political writers in the 20th century. The only person, I think, who comes near to him in uh, the quality of his prose is is Winston Churchill. Uh, And that's saying a lot. Um, He uh, was a good editor. He was a very, very good organizer. Um, The downside was that he was vain. He was exceptionally arrogant, and he was fairly cold as a personality, uh, people around him had to serve him. And um, Often true of geniuses. Uh, so they say. Yeah, it's my experience. So they say, yeah. So that he was uh, a mercurial figure. Um, his health was never very good. Uh, he needed cosseting. He needed people to look after him all, all his life, his, his parents, uh, his, his wives. He put revolution before everything. I think there's no doubt about it that he lived for revolution. He just breathed revolution. He wanted to make a revolution. He would, he would uh, sacrifice, I think he was physically brave, he would have sacrificed himself in the revolutionary cause. There Certainly was, risked his life in many ways for that cause. He sure did, Um, far more so than the other great leaders of the Russian Revolution, uh, Lenin and Stalin, who never put themselves in the way of danger, but but Trotsky definitely did. He was a bit of a daredevil too, I mean his escapes from first Siberia um, and then from uh, the um, the north of, of, of Russia, 
were, were very daredevil affairs. Uh, there was a certain sort of uh, vivacity about him that again contrasts with the other revolutionary leaders in, uh, of his day. And of course he wrote about these escapes with great panache. I mean, he, he, he never lost an opportunity to do a bit of writing, earn a bit of money, and put it to the revolutionary cause. In that sense, he was like Churchill also, who reveled in, yes, in risk-taking and then writing his own accounts, which probably maybe reflected particularly well on him. You're, you're absolutely right. There's nothing that gets my goat worse than Trotskyists who assume that when he wrote about himself, it was a, a, a mirror of <laughs> reality. reality. Yeah. Well, what politician no. ever mirrors yeah. reality? And uh, Trotsky was no exception. He, he, he sculpted everything to fit, to fit the, um, the statue that he wanted to put up to himself. Now, when you say he was, he would, he was a revolutionary first and foremost, uh, when you say revolutionary, you don't just mean the Russian Revolution. He really had a an ideal of a world revolution, a world devoted to, to a socialist uh, future, a socialist Marxist economy, and, and a world where the proletariat were, were, quote, in charge, whatever that meant to him, which we'll get into. But um, he, he certainly didn't, when you say he was a revolutionary, he wasn't content with, with just having Russia go communist. No, that's absolutely right. He was uh, a revolutionary of a very extreme kind. Uh, he wanted a dictatorship in Russia. He was um, almost eager for that dictatorship to be installed by state terror. Uh, he thought of Russia as just being the first country in the world that would have such a revolution, and he thought in the short term that the, the important thing would be to spread it to the rest of Europe and to spread it to North America, and then the whole of the rest of the world would follow suit. That was the idea. It would be, as you say, a world revolution. And he lived by this. From very, very early on, he laid the emphasis on world revolution as being the ultimate goal. Got him into a bit of trouble with fellow Russian revolutionaries who said, sometimes, you know, we must look after Mother Russia. So the, he, he can, had conflict with the nationalists, but he also had conflict with, on strategic issues, with, say, the use of the Russian army, there were two abortive revolutions in Germany, one of which he opposed the use of Russian aid to, but the other he was an enthusiast for in, the, in 1923, I think, where, again, for those of us who aren't up on the history, um, there was a real possibility that much of Europe would go socialist at that time or communist, and there was a very, very active German revolutionary movement that, that, that Trotsky had had great experience with before the Russian Revolution, when he was in various parts of Europe hanging out and fomenting uh, revolution back in Russia, and he certainly thought it possible, if not likely, that, that much of Europe would follow suit. Yeah, he, he thought that from the end of the 19th century onwards, the great advanced industrial countries were, in his phrase, ripe for revolution, and he thought the ripest country of all was Germany. So he didn't have as much confidence in Russia and Ukraine from where he came as he did in, in Germany. And in that respect, he was like all the other communists, all the other Bolsheviks in Russia. They, they, they really looked up to the German working class, or the German proletariat, as they called that, that working class. And he, he uh, is often thought of as, as having 
assumed that the Germans would simply make the revolution by themselves. But because he had this global perspective, he always quietly assumed that the, the Russian Red Army, the Soviet Red Army, would have to become involved. Once, once there was a, a Soviet state in Russia, then everything that happened elsewhere in the world could be affected, and in the case of Germany, would have to be affected by uh, what Russia did, and the Germans might not be able to do it by themselves, because their middle classes were much more uh, determined to see off the revolution than had been the case in Russia. And their army was not as demoralized as the Russian army had been in 1917. So Trotsky, all through the 1920s, made it the assumption that there would be a revolution in Germany, it would be a better revolution than in Russia, but it would still need Russian help. And that would mean that there would be another European war, because the British and the French and possibly the Americans would get involved on the other side. And there would be carnage again. But out of this would come a perfect European revolutionary multinational state. That was what he thought. He was onto something, unfortunately, <laughs> right? <laughs> Although it didn't happen the way he expected. One, one, two things. One is when you mentioned he was a great writer. He was also an incredibly prolific writer. I was just struck by the volume of books and articles and journalism he was he was involved in. But the other thing that struck me in, in, in the overview of his life is how frequently he was prescient about what was going to happen. Some of that was hubris and overconfidence and self-encouragement, no doubt. But some of it, I think he understood some of the trends of history. And certainly, uh, one could argue that modern Europe has many of the features of of a socialist state without the without the dictatorship, without the violence, and without the, st the state control that, that the Russian system has. But certainly, Europe has gone much closer to a, a socialist ideal, may not last, but today at least as, we, as we're here in 2010, Europe certainly came closer to a socialist ideal than a, than a capitalist ideal. Or would you argue with that? Well, I, I wouldn't go quite that far, but it's certainly true that the the European states built up their welfare mechanisms partly in reaction to the Russian Revolution that the communists undertook. Uh, there was fear that the communists might be right, that the workers of Europe might throw out their governments and might overturn capitalism. And so in reaction to that, a lot of the governments of the larger powers in, in Germany, in France, and in Britain, built up social insurance and various healthcare measures so as to see off this threat. Um, I think to some extent that's what happened in the 30s in, in, in the US as well, when Roosevelt had the same sort of uh, feeling that there had to be some means of depriving the communists of their opportunities for anti-capitalist propaganda. Uh, yeah, I think the, the nub of what you're saying is correct. After the First World War, Europe was in a mess. Uh, the Americans withdrew after, after they provided enormously important food relief 
in the early years. Coordinated by Herbert Hoover, uh, right, Who, whose uh, institution named after him we're sitting in right now. Yeah, right? Hoover was one of the greatest philanthropists and humanitarians of that period. Um, he, if he had died in 1922-23, he would now be remembered just for that in, in the most uh, um, fulsome way. Um, he is remembered well in Belgium and in Holland and places like that to, the, to this day. But coming back to uh, Europe in the years after the yeah. First World War, then it was in a mess. And uh, the socialist parties, all of them had splinter groups which were being attracted to joining the Communist International established in Russia. And the price of that was that they had to assure Moscow that they would form proper communist parties and subordinate themselves to Moscow, which is what duly happened. So in all of the big European countries, and indeed the small ones too, and in North America, communist parties became uh, disciplined, centralized, and put themselves at the disposal of the communist international. Now Trotsky said these parties these parties can now be used much more readily than was the case before the First World War. These parties can now be used to quicken the pace of revolutionary transformation. So he urged, he urged the rest of the Soviet communist leadership to take risks, take risks and make revolutions. Um, and there were some, of course. There and were, were, they were yeah. short-lived, but Germany, Hungary, um, many other others that I don't know of. There, there, the, were, the, there were attempts Romania, in the Romania. Bulgaria, uh, the, 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 the northern Italian cities um, were in ferment in 1920. There was every reason to think that something might burst out and be, be durable in one of the, one of the great industrial countries of Europe. It didn't happen because firstly everyone knew what was coming. So if you were a priest or a factory owner or a shopkeeper uh, or just um, a member of the factory workforce who believed in God, uh, who believed in private property, who didn't want a, a country to be savaged by dictatorship and terror, then you knew what was coming and you knew what you had to do about it, which was to be much more resolute in staving off communism than the Russians had been in 1917. So um, reactionary, literally reactionary movements um, opposed to communism that were a reaction to communism became uh, very, very widespread in Europe uh, in the 1920s, so that by the 1930s, uh, democracy itself was a, uh, was a minority... Fragile, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it was a minority phenomenon across Europe. There were very few democracies. And one of the reasons for this was the determination of the anti-communists to see off communism, and if the price of that was the removal of democracy, they were prepared to 
to, to pay that price so that whichever way you look at it, the October Revolution in Russia of 1917 was a disaster because it had this bounce-on effect of um, giving an opportunity for fascism and for far-right, very far-right conservative politics to take a grip on so many countries. Uh, and, and in the end, the result of all of that was the Second World War, which was a calamity for mankind. And, of, you know, of course, a terrible 70-year run for the Russian people, but it wasn't never so great in Russia. Um, I have a, a Russian friend of mine in, in St. Louis where I used to live. When, I, when I'd ask him how he was doing, he would say, fine, like all Americans. But that's not the answer you get from a Russian. Usually, you get ah, yes, nah. So they have a lot of experience with um, hardship. Um, but going back to uh, the the revolution itself, and and the thinking about it, the pre-revolutionary period, the post-revolutionary period. In the pre-revolutionary period, what is so, was so striking to me about Trotsky was his confidence that a revolution was inevitable. Now, of course, all. A lot of ideologues have a certain overconfidence, like all entrepreneurs, really. He was really an, an, an intellectual entrepreneur, hmm. uh, is the way I think of him. Uh, and entrepreneurs always have a lot of faith in their own product and how easy it'll be to, <laughs> to raise money. And, uh, and how, you know, we're, all we need is 10% of the Chinese market and think how much we'll sell. So, but he was very much that way. He, he saw, as you say, he saw his, um, the world revolution as inevitable, and he acted that way especially in the 1905 to 1917 period. So talk about what was going on in Russia. Talk about what happened in 1905 and, and Trotsky's role between 1905 and, and, say, the abdication of the Tsar in 1917, which created a provisional government led by Kerensky before the, the Soviets took power, before the communists, took, the Bolsheviks took power. Well, when Trotsky was growing up, the... The agricultural sector to which his father belonged was was on the rise. It was doing better. You say the, agricultural sector. His father wasn't a wasn't a uh, agricultural worker. He owned a farm. Right? Oh yeah. yes, he very was successful. A very successful. <coughs> Somebody ought to write the biography of Trotsky's father. Uh -huh. um, I mean, a spectacularly successful Jewish farmer in the south of what we now call Ukraine. Um, um, really an economic hero. You mentioned his Jewishness because it was part of a, his being a farmer was his, from your book I learned that the, the Russians were very worried about what role Jews would play and they, they sent a lot of them into, into Ukraine in hopes that they would become more Russian, which they did, right? Yeah. And um, less Jewish. And less, less Jewish and, and um, um, they hoped that they would become successful farmers and very few of them did. <laughs> Very, very few of them. It's not a Jewish I mean, um, tradition. Why should anybody <laughs> living in a town suddenly dumped in the, yeah. in the countryside become a successful farmer? Most of them failed. Yeah. But Trotsky's father succeeded magnificently so that he, he was renting land from Poles and from Ukrainians and from, from Russians as well as his own land. He, 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 he was a tremendous success. And he gave his young son, Trotsky, a good education because he could afford it. And Trotsky grew up with a fixity of purpose. 
that many youngsters who, who had a rebellious streak had in those years. He looked around the countryside and he saw these poor peasants everywhere. He looked around the Russian and Ukrainian factories. He didn't Odessa, go into them. In Odessa and elsewhere. Yeah, in Odessa, which was one of the, the hubs of the Russian imperial economy. Odessa was the great cereal export port of the Russian Empire. I mean, it fed Germany with uh, uh, its cereals. That stopped in 1917 when they had the 70-year stretch of bad weather. A joke I made in the, in the uh, Bukharin Paul Gregory podcast, I'll make it again. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but yeah, they were a very successful agricultural region. I mean, the fact was that they were modernizing their economy rather fast. A lot of people had a hard time had always had a hard time for centuries, and some people had a harder time because of the pressures of the economic modernization that was taking place. And a lot of young men and women, like Trotsky, turned to revolution and said that the only way that all of this can be humanized, the only way that all of these problems can be settled, the only way that we can get rid of economic exploitation, and this, was, of course, was a political dictatorship, Tsarism was a political dictatorship. There were no trade unions, no legal political parties, no free press. There was a preventive censorship. You had to submit things before you published them. Uh, so that the combination of all of this turned a lot of people into revolutionaries. And what's remarkable about Trotsky is that he doesn't just become a revolutionary, he becomes a Marxist. He becomes an extreme kind of revolutionary, and he doesn't just become a Marxist, he becomes an extreme Marxist, because he says that the, the big changes um, can come in our country, not over decades, not even over years, but can happen overnight, if we only establish some kind of workers' dictatorship, because Tsarism, under the Romanov imperial family, is weak, it can be burst asunder. The middle classes aren't yet powerful enough to take power. We, the Marxists, can lead the workers when we get one sniff of a chance. We can go for it and establish a workers' government. And blow me in 1905, after a, a peaceful demonstration of workers outside the Winter Palace uh, of the imperial family, when the Tsar Nicholas II wasn't uh, in residence, Police fire on, police and troops fire on the, uh, the peaceful demonstrators on a Sunday, soon to become known as Bloody Sunday, and all hell gets let loose in Russia. Uh, workers rise up, strike against the government, peasants seize the pasture lands and the forests of the landlords, the non-Russians rebel, and for a year and a half it looks as if as if Tsarism would, would fall, that Nicholas II would be out on his heels. And workers set, set up their own councils in St. Petersburg, and one of the great revolutionary leaders of that council, that Soviet as it is in, in Russian, Soviet, was Leon Trotsky, the young Leon Trotsky, who's come back from exile, he's come back from Switzerland, uh, he knows that he has his chance because he's always believed that, that he, he would be a great speaker. Everybody knew he was already a great writer. 
his chance had come. So he gives a few big speeches and then gets arrested. <laughs> <laughs> this is in when, roughly 1905? Yeah, at the end of 1905. Uh-huh. And then he's put on trial, and he gives another big speech. I mean, he's one for the drama. Uh, he knows the politics of uh, theatricality uh, by instinct. He and his comrades are let off fairly lightly. They're sent into exile again, even though he had a record of... That's exile within the country. Russia's big enough that you, you don't have to kick people out of the country. You can exile them inside the country. And even though he had a record of escaping from Siberian exile already, back at the beginning of the 1900s, they send him out there again. And what does he do? He bribes... Uh, 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 bribes a, a, a drunken sleigh uh, master to take him across the snowy wastes of northern Russia and uh, back to St. Petersburg, reunites with his wife and children, and he's off to Vienna, where he stays, predicting revolution. All the time he's saying, we failed that time, another time will come. This was merely the first act in the drama. There'll be a second and a last act. And now he says, I'm utterly convinced that the workers can take power, keep power, never share it with anyone, maintain a revolutionary administration uh, which will deny civil rights to the enemies of Marxism permanently, and somehow this revolution will spread itself to the rest of Europe and then all around the world. And it will bring down the old European empires. It will bring down the uh, American government. And once the industrial countries have fallen, then the third world will, will not be long afterwards in following. Okay, he was, that prediction, which was partly correct, partly incorrect, those predictions, some right, some wrong, were, were aided and abetted by the uh, lack of zeal with which the Tsar and the Okhrana, the police force, uh, treated their enemies, Un unlike the communists when they got into power. Uh, but clearly the, the repressive nature of the Tsar, while clearly was repressive, did not have the terrorist, mostly did not have the terrorist side. Is that correct that in terms of its enemies? They could have killed him. They could have, they could have executed him. They could have been more zealous in how they treated Trotsky and Lenin, who was also in exile much of the time. Uh, it was a tactical error. It, it, or, or a mark of some humanity or incompetence. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? I think, I think it's a, a mixture of a lot of things. It, if, you, if you were sent to penal servitude, then it was grim. If you were sent to administrative exile, when you were out there in Siberia, you could get yourself a, a part-time job, and you were given um, a stipend by the government. So it wasn't the <laughs> grueling, <laughs> wasn't the grueling set of conditions that um, we're familiar with, with the uh, Soviet Gulag. Um, if you take the Russian Empire and its population, and compare it with the size of the police force, then actually the United Kingdom had seven times more policemen than the Tsar, than the Tsar had. 
And the reason that he didn't have as many policemen as uh, uh, he might have wanted was that he didn't have the resources. This was a poor country. Yeah, that's interesting. It was a big, big country. <laughs> it would have been very hard, it is very hard, to police. And um, Nicholas II was no woolly liberal, but he, but he didn't have the resources and he hadn't had the time to build up his bureaucratic apparatus of um, policing. Um, and police were so badly paid that everyone assumed that they were easily bribed, and they were easily bribed. I mean, these, these revolutionaries, if they wanted to get out of Siberia, they could always bribe a policeman. <laughs> and then they told their stories as if they, they were acts of daring do. Some of uh, which were. But some of, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm exaggerating a wee bit, but um, most of the time it wasn't daring do, it was uh, the rustle of the ruble note, uh, and they get a ticket on a, a well-upholstered train back along the Trans-Siberian Railway to Moscow or, or Petrograd, and then out... If, if they you know, come from wealthy families like Trotsky did, then uh, if your parents will subsidize you, you can, you can live in Vienna and Geneva. Or, and he uh, worked, of course, though. He worked as a working journalist when he was in Vienna. He wrote yes. accounts uh, for papers, numerous newspapers yes. about what was going on in the world and the war. And, yeah. uh, let's move to 1917. Uh, what, there's a provisional government uh, initially, uh, that eventually falls to the Bolsheviks. Give us that episode and what was Trotsky's role uh, through there. Well, Trotsky didn't come back to the Russian Revolution until May 1917 because um, he was stranded in New York and uh, he had to get a transatlantic liner across to Scandinavia. And when the liner pulled in, uh, to the port of Halifax in Nova Scotia. The British didn't take very kindly to him because they had rumbled what kind of policies uh, he was likely to promote back home, not just uh, revolutionary dictatorship, but withdrawal from the war. Which England, this is again 1917, still some question as to how World One's going to turn out. If Russia withdraws, which of course they eventually do, that yep. allows Germany to fight a one-front war, tougher for the Allied forces, etc. Indeed. And this was this is well known about Trotsky because he had been writing these articles in this vein in New York newspapers. So he gets bundled off the liner uh, and strip searched um, very brusquely. This is one of the things he remembered the rest, for the rest of his days. He had a sense of personal propriety, and he, he had never in Tsarist prisons been hmm. uh, handled quite as roughly as he said that the, the, the British naval establishment applied to him. Uh, he then gets back home in Russia, uh, goes to Scandinavia, gets up through Finland, down to Petrograd, as St. Petersburg was then called, and he joins that... Called call Petrograd because of the... Uh why did they change the name? Well, St. Petersburg kind of sounded a bit German. Yeah, that's what I like. I like that because it's <laughs> one of the examples of linguistic uh, patriotism during wartime. Yes. Uh, so, so go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, the British Peters. royal family were the Saxe Coburgs until the First World War, and they changed their name to Windsor. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> that's the same sort of thing. And um, the, 
there, there was a liberal-led provisional government that was committed to fighting the war on the Allied side with the This British, is after the abdication of the Tsar. After the so, abdication of the Tsar, who'd been pulled down by uh, workers' demonstrations in one single city, but it was the crucial city, it was the capital city, Petrograd. And once he fell in Petrograd, he'd fallen everywhere. So uh, workers were joined by peasants and by soldiers and sailors. And there was tolerance of this new cabinet of liberals um, because they introduced all the civic freedoms. And they promised to fight only a defensive war. And this was a very popular policy at the time. But the economy was collapsing. The administration was in chaos. Uh, food shortages were spreading to the cities. Uh, there were so many deaths of peasant soldiers on the Eastern Front. And the government was really on a hiding to nothing. In the absence of um, uh, an army and a police force that would impose its will, and it didn't have that because everything had fallen to pieces when the Tsar uh, abdicated at the beginning of March 1917. So when Trotsky came back to Russia, the circumstances could not have been better for a lunge at power. And although he'd had his disagreements with Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the, the Bolsheviks, a very extreme Marxist party, uh, for years before 1917, he comes together, he joins Lenin, he comes together with him in the Bolshevik party and becomes a Bolshevik. And the two of them work out a policy uh, for seizing power. They'll use the workers and these restored Soviets, these restored workers' councils, as, as a blind by, behind which they would put the party in power. And the, the provisional government by then led by Alexander Kerensky, who was a moderate socialist, uh, really don't have the garrison behind them uh, to enable them to resist the seizure of power on the 25th of October 1917. And suddenly the world hears the news that the first socialist state has been proclaimed. Huge basic reforms are undertaken in agriculture, industry, uh, culture, uh, and over, over the following year, this one-party state is installed. It's also uh, a terror state. It's also a state that will um, introduce uh, a preventive censor censorship. So the, 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 the building blocks of what what became the Soviet Union are already being laid in very, very strong cement in 1917 to 1918. Talk about that terror. When you say terror, uh, the way I understand it, it's, it's, the, it's the ruthless uh, disposal and, and treatment of ideological enemies and others. But some economic enemies eventually certainly becomes part of the, the, that story. But what do you mean by that? Because I think for, for most uh, uneducated, which again, I include myself in that group, most of us think of, or once did, I don't anymore, but thought of 
Now, Lenin was was this uh, was not Stalin. St- Stalin was was a murderer of, of enormous proportions. One of the one or two worst murderers human beings of the twentieth century. We think of Lenin. Of course, he was he was somewhat ruthless. He had a revolution to carry out. Um, or saw it that way, and unlike his predecessors, you say Kerensky was was not loath to use violence. How much was there? Do we? How much do we know about that period in terms of what the early Soviet state did to its enemies and, and the scope of it? Well, we know a lot now. Um, there's really no excuse for people not having known it before. Historians, indeed, often did take this gentler view of uh, Lenin and Trotsky than they did of Stalin. But um, terror is a system of dealing with your political or economic opponents outside the law and applying the most uh, brutal methods of repression to them. That was going on right from the start. That was going on from the first year of Soviet rule onwards. And uh, Lenin and... Trotsky, as much as Stalin later, supplied the orders, and they also supplied the intellectual rationale for what was being done. So Trotsky, for example, wrote a book called Terrorism and Communism, where he said that state terror was a good way of starting off a revolutionary dictatorship. It was very, very effective in quickening the revolutionary schedule and getting rid of problems physically. Um, before they got out of got out of hand. But you don't you don't talk about it much in the book. Uh, just to give a little bit of a, a background, in the early days of the revolution, Trotsky's got lots of different roles. But one of his roles is he's in charge of the Red Army, yeah. which is a weird thing because he's this sort of professorial intellectual yeah. type who's anti-military, uh, all certainly anti-war all through his youth. And then suddenly finds himself hmm. the head of an army, and which he has to use because there's a civil war being fought. There's a, a backlash by the Russian military and others trying to overthrow the, the Russian Revolution. The whites are fighting the reds, and here he is prosecuting this, this war uh, internally. And he kills a lot of people who, who don't fight well, who don't whatever, but you don't go into much detail on that. So I'm curious why he didn't, and, and if you can flesh some of that out. That's what we know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, there was a lot of terror carried out by the forerunner of the KGB, the, the so-called Cheka. Well, Trotsky wasn't part of that organization. And so he, he didn't physically sign many of the death warrants. So Who did? Well, Dzerzhinsky, Felix Dzerzhinsky, the Pole, who was in charge of the um, uh, political police, the Cheka. Um, what Trotsky did do, though, was help set the policy and formulate the intellectual rationale for it, which was simply that uh, you're never going to get reconciliation between the party of the proletariat and the parties of the middle classes, it's not going to happen. The interests um, are are, are completely divergent. Uh, Violent struggle is inevitable. You might as well get your violence in first. Get your retaliation in first and get it in big. 
before the counter-revolution is attempted. So um, he didn't um, physically sign many orders for executions, and, and that, together with his undoubted role as an inspirer of the Red Army in the Civil War and the, and the war against the armed interventions by the British, the French, the Americans and the Japanese, that combined to give him a, a, a reputation as having been a rather romantic fellow like Garibaldi or, uh, or Bolivar in um, South America, but that, that, that entirely overlooks uh, the, the role that he played as one of the architects of one of the most gruesome state terror dictatorships in the, in the 20th century. And that's one of the points I was trying to get across in the book, is that we shouldn't romanticize Leon Trotsky. He was as hard as nails. Uh, he, drove, he, he drove the October Revolution and the early Soviet state down pathways that had it not been for him and, and Lenin, it might not have taken. He was a hard, hard man, ultimately. But he had the manners of a, I think you were saying, he was professorial. Uh, he was... Three-piece suit, the uh, goatee. Three-piece suit, The yeah. pince-nez, Buf yeah. Buffet, uh, hair. Um, I mean, let's face it, he was a handsome man. He had the look of a, of a movie star, and he knew it. Uh, he, he had the military uniform specially made for him. He had his... His uh, famous Trotsky train, specially decked out, so that he could just throw down the uh, uh, the gate from the carriage and give speeches to, to presumably very surprised peasants when they stopped at each village going through uh, the countryside. I mean, he loved revolution. He loved being in the in the midst of the fighting in in the in the Russian Civil War. It it, it, it was what he was made for, but. To my mind, that should not allow us to romanticize him. He, he, he brought about an iniquitous regime, and he never understood his responsibility. He ne so that when Lenin died in 1924, and the struggle for the succession took place between him and Stalin, and when Stalin won, and made that dictatorship even more ruthless, even tighter, even more vengeful, even more violent, even more systematically um, a dictatorship that gobbled up society, and millions of people died. Trotsky, when he looked back, never said to himself, well, I helped create the conditions for this, this scale of terror to come about. He never even put the question to himself. And to that extent then... That we know of. That we know of, but yeah. I think we know as much as we need to know because, you know, I've, I've looked at all of these scraps of paper, his drafts and so on here at the, the, Hoover, uh, the Hoover Institution archives, and you, you, you can see what's going through his head. When you read the drafts, you can see what he's cutting out before he gets things published when he, when he has second thoughts about things. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he never regretted making the October Revolution and setting up the early Soviet state. He thought that that was the glory period uh, when he was in co-charge 
the revolution, and um, uh, he never saw that much as he was a victim, after all he was assassinated in 1940, nearly exactly 70 years ago um, in Mexico uh, City, uh, he never saw that there was a connection between uh, the extrajudicial murder of himself and the kind of thing that he had condoned back in 1917, 1918, 1919. Well, because the, uh, the ends justify the means when they're your ends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tragically. Uh, incredible. I, you know, I, I guess one thing that's always fascinated me about leaders and, and I think about it in, in the current world a lot, it's very rare that, that anybody... Uh, with an historical legacy, admits fault. It's um, the strategy that most people take is I was right and I'm going to find evidence that, that proves it and I'm going to keep that face up. Very rare that someone can say I, I made a mistake. Um, yeah, that's true. It's very, and I think psychologically it's, it's extremely difficult for a human being to say uh, my life was a lie. Yeah, um, I, absolutely, I absolutely agree. Agree with you there, Russ. But it, what is unforgivable is for his followers not to ask those. Questions. Yeah, we'll get to that. I want to get to the followers. Yeah, I agree with you there totally. Um, uh, let's go back to the to the nineteen seventeen to nineteen twenty four period. Uh, a period that again most of us don't know much about. I was under the impression before I read your book that there was a revolution. There, were, there was a provisional government. Eventually, the Bolsheviks triumph. Lenin is the is the new head of the government, and he's a dictator until he dies in twenty four. There's a fight for power. Stalin wins. He's the new dictator. But this period seventeen to twenty four is very interesting because it's not really clear who's in charge. Lenin's the dominant figure. Trotsky's influential. But there's a whole group of people who are interacting, and the. Power hierarchy is is extremely fluid, and it's part of the reason I think that the post-Lenin period is is so interesting, and we're going to talk about that in a more depth. But talk briefly about how the government was actually working in the seventeen to twenty-four period. Well, it took a bit of time. It took a year and a half for the system to clarify. The the, the sort of pools of politics were very muddy for a, uh, a, at least a year and a half, but. Uh, within that year and a half, the Soviet regime became a one-party state. And inside that state, the party was essentially the government. So that that was a really big change because uh, there had been no one-party state anywhere. They had no model. There right? was no there, model. There was no, there was no blueprint at this point. They, they weren't... They were kind of figuring out as they went along. They were, and it was a one-party state um, that shocked the world at the time. But that party was a bit of a shambles. It was very, very chaotic and disorganized. How was it going to run the economy and politics if itself it was a, a disorganized mess? So the party turned back to its pre-revolutionary doctrines uh, of centralism, of discipline, of hierarchy, and it, it achieved 
a change in itself steadily over the early 1920s so as to fit itself out to be able to control the revolution because it was a very, very difficult task. Um, the former Russian Empire covered one-sixth of the world's Earth's surface. Uh, the roads and the rivers and the rail system didn't reach all of the parts uh, that they needed to reach. Uh, the peasants often revolted. The workers often went on strike. The soldiers and sailors were often reluctant to serve in the armed forces so that the very people in whose name the revolution had been made were a problem. In those circumstances, it took years for the one-party state, with its governing single party, to regularize its relationships. And at the top of that party, all manner of interests were jangling against each other. And there was no single leader in a formal sense. Lenin was the dominant leader, as you said, because of his record of getting things done on the day. And his um, charisma, no doubt, as Trotsky clearly was able to exploit his own. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that when Lenin died, there was still a lot of contention at the top of the party as to which pair or trio of leaders might... No one actually thought uh, there would be a single leader what would be the sort of factional um, constellation when Lenin went, so that it was all up for grabs. And it wasn't just a question of who would be his successor. It would be what will emerge next as, as the ruling system. Yeah, and Lenin wanted a collective leadership. He didn't think anyone was... I mean, he was arrogant too. He didn't think anyone was fit to take over from him. And... Um, he wrote, a, as you write about in detail, he wrote a, a last testament. He knew he was yeah. dying or yes. was fearful of the future. And he wrote a, 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 he gave, he wrote a what you want to call it, a briefing paper on his fellow revolutionaries. And strangely enough, they all came up short. Yeah. Uh, he, they were all, it was yeah. criticism of all of them. Some criticized yeah. more than others. Stalin in particular, uh, and that was yes. suppressed. Uh, yes. Came out in bits and pieces yes. and after his death, but mainly uh, he died right before it was about to, to come public. That's it. And... Uh, steadily it became clear that Lenin had been very prescient at least about two things. One was that Trotsky would make a bid for power. And the second thing was that Stalin quietly would exercise a lot of power and could aggrandize that power to the point that he could challenge for the succession too. Both of those things came into being. And uh, initially... There were policy di divisions between the two men. Uh, Trotsky wanted an emphasis on European socialist revolution above all else, and he wanted a, a policy that would take risks with uh, Soviet security in pursuit of that ultimate objective because he didn't think the Russian Revolution would amount to very much unless it had a German revolution on the side of it. Stalin, by contrast, wanted to settled the country, wanted to pursue the new economic policy of Lenin introduced in 1921, which gave a certain amount of room for private trade, for small-time 
industrialists and above all for peasant farmers to get on with their uh, commerce without too much state interference. It was still a one-party state. It was still a, a state where the economy was very severely regulated by the state. But um, Stalin wanted a, a breathing space. Trotsky didn't. So a dust-up between the two of them was um, not just a personal dust-up. It was a dust-up over uh, policy two. And by 1927, Trotsky had lost. And he'd lost because he underestimated this pokey little pockmarked Georgian who, oh gosh, he didn't speak French. And blow me, he didn't speak uh, German. Um, and he had awful table manners. <laughs> and he smoked a pipe in the house when uh, nobody... Uh, um, nobody liked that. Actually, a lot of people did like that at the time, but Lenin and Trotsky didn't like it. And he swore at his wife. He swore at, actually, he swore at Lenin's wife as well. I mean, how could such a person possibly mount to the pedestal occupied by the great Leon Trotsky? Trotsky massively underestimated this man. Uh, as did many others. He wasn't alone. He wasn't alone. You could, it's a long list. <laughs> Boy, it's, it's a, a long, long list. list. Actually, Stalin had a lot of talents. He was a very fluent writer. He did speak two languages. He spoke Georgian and Russian. <laughs> he had edited Pravda. Um, of course, he had a Georgian accent. Of course, he hadn't got the education of the others, but he had been training to be a priest until the age of 20, so he wasn't lacking in a secondary education at all. Um, Trotsky, Trotsky was a snob. He was a snob. As many yeah. intellectuals are. And, yeah, uh, he was. I, I want to come back to the to the struggle, but I want to mention one thing and then ask you a question. One is that one of the things that, that you learned from your book is the unending uh, fight over ideology, minutia, factions, yes. uh, uh, hair splitting that that runs from really 19, eighteen whenever on through through the twenties. A lot of these you mentioned some actual policy disagreements, but of course a lot of their squabbling, yeah. and it's not just Trotsky and, and Stalin. This, it, you get this impression of, um, remind me a lot of a faculty meeting, uh, a, <laughs> uh, a, a sort of uh, trivial, it, it's almost like a, um, uh, I don't know how to say this, um, boys at play, uh, just a, a sort of, there's preening, there's ego, there's fighting over things that are not so important. But some of the things, of course, the ones you just mentioned, the international focus, the economy, were important. Before we get to that, post-Lenin uh, period in more detail. Let's talk about the economics for a minute. In 1917 to 1923, you know, there was, quote, state control. There was a lot of um, uncertainty about how it was going to turn out, what form it would take, and, and what was going to actually happen. And as you say, it's a big country. The government really couldn't run the economy in 1920. The, the Communist Party couldn't do that out of, out of uh, Petrograd or Moscow. It was imp impossible. But they did do a lot of things. They did do a lot of dramatic things, and they found themselves in all kinds of messes as a result. And one issue that you talk about in the book is the the this is a very Hayekian uh, issue. So I want to, one reason I want to bring it up is this: the mix between agricultural prices and industrial goods prices. So they they quote got it wrong. And what what happened? Well. Um 
Although they made concessions to the peasants in 1921, they still held what they called the commanding heights of the economy in their hands. So they, had, they had all of the big factories, they had all of foreign trade, and they had all of the banks. And uh, they had the planning mechanisms to enable them to set the prices of the industrial products that were coming out of their factories. So what they did was they charged in real terms three times more for the industrial products coming out of the state factories than had come out of those factories when they were in private hands before the First World they War. They were gouchers. They, they were, <laughs> yes, they were. And they, they, um, they didn't have the sense to see that the peasants could do other things with their grain. Didn't like it, yeah. Uh, they, could, they could eat more bread. They could feed more grain to their livestock. If you see pictures of cattle or pigs in the Russian countryside in the mid-1920s, uh, they're not the skinny livestock that some of them had been uh, before 1914. They're fat and healthy. It's because, because peasants knew what they could do with their cereal. The other thing they could do with their cereal is turn it into vodka. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so the peasants were quite happy to, or just put it in the barn and keep it until the, the, the government uh, saw sense. Now, this really enraged Leon Trotsky, who was quite a, an economic prognosticator, and he said the period of appeasing the peasantry has to soon stop because they're going to have us by the throat forever. We're never going to be able to sell our industrial products at three times <laughs> the market rate uh, ever again because they'll just simply withdraw from the market. So what we've got to do is change the whole basis of the economy so that the peasants, who are 85% of the population, don't work on their own farms, but have all of those farms brought together into a large number of huge farms which will be collectively run and won't be owned by the peasants. They will be owned by the state. And we'll train the peasants up. We'll give them tractors and... Uh, will cream off the proceeds, and they won't. They won't. They'll. They'll be grateful to us. They'll. They'll think we're wonderful because we've given them fertilizers and tractors and uh, new houses. We'll turn the Soviet countryside into a sort of rural industrial um, zone, and everything will be hunky dory. And. Others at the time, even among Bolsheviks, said, you must be joking. These people have revolted in 1917. They revolted in 1918. They revolted in 1919, 1920, 1921. The only reason we've got them stabilized now is that we've given them the right to trade their grain. We've got to keep making concessions to these people because the towns and the cities are going to starve. And Trotsky said, no. We must go for them, persuade them about the glorious future that awaits them if they agree to be communized, to be collectivized. And his opponents then came back at him and said, you must be joking if you think the peasantry will put up with that. You'll have to use force. And Trotsky said, no, no, education will do it. Propaganda will do it. Well... You know, you pays your money and you takes your choice. I mean, did he really believe this guff he was saying? 
Did he really believe that he could do it totally without force? I don't think so. Uh, at the very, at the very well, we got most, to see the policy put into place twenty or ten years later, right when he was in, he was gone, but uh, yeah. power. But yeah, that's certainly what Stalin was yeah. was ended up doing. Yeah, ironically, Stalin ended up doing what um, the enemies of Trotsky in the nineteen twenties said that Trotsky would have to do if he wanted to collectivize and communize the agricultural system. And let's bear in mind, too, that Trotsky's ideas were not just confined to agriculture. They had to do with all sectors of the economy, transport, industry, communications. Everything was to be state-owned. Everything was to be state-planned. There was to be one central state-planning authority running everything. Now, I've looked at this from all sorts of angles, and you're an economist, and I'm not, but I can't see anything in the writings of the Bolsheviks that said how on earth this central state planning mechanism was ever going to have enough information quickly enough and be able to process it well enough to run a whole economy like that on a permanent basis. I just don't see that they seem to have acted on a sort of... Uh, a wing and a prayer. They seemed to think that they could work it out as they went along, rather than work it out in advance. If they'd tried working it out in advance, they would have been more sober in their proje projections, I think. Yeah, and well, that was, of course, Hayek's argument early on that that they would that the socialist dream was uh, not was forget the, you know he had two two attacks on it. One was it wasn't practical, and two it would lead to despotism. Uh, I think he was right on both counts. Um, let's turn to the post-Lenin period. Uh, we interviewed Paul. I interviewed Paul Gregory uh, a couple weeks ago on his book on Bukharin's relationship with Stalin and his uh, and his wife. Uh, it's an extraordinary story. But uh, your book has a slightly different perspective on Bukharin because we see him when he was younger uh, mm. and uh, on the inside rather than on the outside. So we learned from. Paul's book that that Bukharin and Stalin were um, allies, but I learned from your book that it was a slightly um, Bukharin's not quite the soft intellectual that that I that I gathered from from uh, from Paul's book. Uh, in the post-Lenin period, Trotsky finds himself allied with Kamenev and Zinoviev. Mm. On the other side are Stalin and Bukharin, yeah. and they ruthlessly. Uh, Push those three out. The other, the what are called, I guess, the leftist opposition. Correct. Mm, so what happens? Opposition. Get us, get us to um, to Trotsky's uh, descent and and end. And then, if we, if you have time, I'd like to ask a few more other questions. See how we. Well, do. They, the the left opposition, which became the united opposition, a lot of good nomenclature, right? Yeah. I don't think into hairspray, but everything's got its own little yeah. brand name and, and label. Yeah, and that's true. No, they were very fussy about that sort of thing. Uh, the left opposition more or less agreed. I mean, they had all sorts of disagreements among themselves. That there had to be a faster pace of revolutionary transformation, and there had to be a more a definite commitment to spreading the revolution beyond Soviet frontiers. The ascendant majority inside the leadership led by Stalin and Bukharin said, no, uh, while we must maintain the dictatorship at home 
And while we agree about a lot with uh, the left opposition, we don't want to take risks. We don't want the revolutionary transformation to be pursued at the moment quite so intensively as they're suggesting. So they fell out. And they had a, a battle royal behind closed doors, mainly. And uh, Bukharin and uh, Stalin won. And they just walked all over the left opposition of Trotsky, Zinoviev, and Karmenev. And they threw them out of the leadership. They threw them out of their homes. They threw them out of the party. In which, the is, which is... Political death. That's it. You're, out of, you're, you're, not, you're not a player anymore. Yeah. And they, they, they said that if the defeated oppositionists came crawling back and recanted everything that they had stood for, then they would be readmitted to the party and a degree of respectability would return to them. And Kamyanov and Zinoviev agreed to humiliate themselves. Trotsky didn't. He sat out in Kazakhstan uh, in 1928 until he was moved to Turkey in 1929. Uh, and he, he was very confident that one day he would come back to power in the Kremlin because he didn't think that this pair, Bukharin and Stalin, would amount to much. He thought they were incompetent, stupid, um, would mess up the economy, would not be able to coordinate the political system, um, when, when uh, Stalin collectivized the peasantry in 1929, even then Trotsky thought, well, on the whole, that's probably what he ought to be doing. But there's always a danger that that very right wing Bukharin might come back to power and then there'll be a counter-revolution. Who was more open to private property, yeah. prices, markets. yes. yes. Because between Bukharin and Stalin, there were differences, too. My feeling, though, is that they were all Bolsheviks. They all believed in the one-party state. They all believed in state terror. They all believed in the one-ideology state. They all believed in society as a, a resource uh, mobilizable by the political leadership uh, in whichever way the leadership uh, felt like. So the differences among them are not so significant as the similarities. That's... Really, right. the core of my 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 work over the years. But they felt differently, of course. They <laughs> felt differently. <laughs> they were they were they were like German monks who argued about how yeah. many angels can dance on the head of a uh, a pin. I mean, that that's the mentality they had. So why do you so Bukharin? You were talking about people who underestimated Stalin. Bukharin was one of them as well. In the Gregory podcast, uh, you know, in his book, we learn about. Uh, Bukharin makes the fatal error, turned out to be fatal, not just um, a bad night of, of talking with Kamenev, I think, yes. Zinoviev, which then allows Stalin later to brand him as uh, anti-party, anti, as a, you know, on, on the wrong side of the, uh, of, of the party. Yes, well, I mean, uh, everyone knew that S Stalin was bugging everybody that he had listening devices on their telephones, and yet they still stupidly uh, talked in their houses and in their dachas. Everybody knew that the Chekhar, the forerunner of the KGB, was following people around and had informers and provocateurs. 
to do their business. And yet they still, they still travel around the country and passed messages to each other. And so Stalin knew roughly the, the main story that he needed to know, namely that they all despised him, uh, including people who had worked closely with him, like Bukharin, that they despised him, that they wanted him out, and if you're vengeful and you're ruthless and you're cunning and you're well organized, and Stalin was all those things, uh, then you put the party and the police uh, off the lead and you go for them. And um, you ruin their careers and eventually in the middle of the 1930s you start to arrest them. He'd missed a trick with Trotsky because he'd kicked him out of the country in 1929. Trotsky went to Turkey and then to France and then to Scandinavia and then no country would have him at all because of Soviet pressures, Soviet diplomatic pressures in the 30s. So the only place that would have him was Mexico, revolutionary Mexico, which is where he spent the last three years of his life. Why do you think Stalin had him killed? Stalin... And um, by the way, when it happened, was, did everybody know that it was... When Trotsky was, was killed, uh, did everybody know it was Stalin? Did Stalin brag about it? What, what do we know about that? No, Stalin did not brag about it. That's a very interesting point. The and how do we find out that it was that it was ordered by Stalin? We, if he didn't brag about it, it was said at the time by everybody who didn't like Stalin that Stalin had done it. I mean, you had to be a completely credulous individual not to think that it was the Soviet security agencies in some way or other, but. The killer himself, Ramon Mercader, uh, always claimed that he was a disappointed Trotskyist who had turned against Trotsky after meeting Trotsky in Mexico City and finding that he had feet of clay. And he, he, he went through years of prison in, in Mexico telling the same story until he was released in the 1960s and was spirited back to the Soviet Union which he didn't like. When he found out what the Soviet Union was like, he asked to leave. Yeah. <laughs> he asked to mm. leave. Um, by then, of course, he was fated as a Soviet hero. Everyone, everyone by then knew at last that Mercader had killed Trotsky on Stalin's orders. Uh, but at the time, this was denied by the Soviet Union, denied by the killer, but of course Trotskyists knew, and there were so many leads going back to Moscow. Why Stalin bothered with this is, in, is, is a, it is an intriguing question, because so many important police resources were put at the disposal of this assassination. I mean, there were two attempts on his life in, the, in, the, in that year, 19, 1940. The Trotskyists, particularly the American Trotskyists, he relied enormously on the American Trotskyists to establish himself in Mexico City. They sent down a, an electrical specialist who built up a very sophisticated alarm system in the villa where Trotsky uh, landed up living. Um, they had guard posts. The, the, the Mexican police supplied a force outside the building. 
there were there were guard towers built in case of an armed assault on the villa it was if you go if you go around it today i mean it's just as it was in 1940 uh, it still has the rabbit hutches uh, that uh, trotsky tended because um, you know he was a farmer's boy he and also he didn't have a lot of money by then and all these Trotskyists kept turning up from the U.S. That he had to entertain and them. he had to yeah. entertain and feed them. And if he wanted a Trotskyist movement in the world, this is what he had to do. So he was a very practical man. Uh, it's all still in place uh, there. Uh, but he was a stupid man. I mean, he lets this man come into his study, who he barely knows, uh, wearing a Macintosh, in which he not only has a huge dagger, I've seen pictures of this dagger, it is a very long dagger. Bob's hands are about two feet apart, for those of you not yeah, following uh, on TV. Yeah, it's a huge long dagger, and uh, an ice axe with, with part of the handle hacked off. Now, I'm not talking about an ice pick, the cocktail. Often people talk about Trotsky having yeah. been felled by an ice pick. That's what cocktail waiters use. Right. This was an ice axe for going up a mountainside. He had them in the, in the Macintosh, both those weapons in the Macintosh, on a sunny afternoon in the middle of Mexico City. These Trotskyists have all the sophisticated uh, devices and all the guards around the villa, and yet they still let this man in in this, in, the, in this form. And Trotsky talks to him alone, alone in the study. And while Trotsky is pouring over the manuscript that Mercader has brought in for him to have a look at, Mercader gets to his feet and jabbers away about something and makes his, his choice of weapon, reaches into his pocket and plunges the ice axe into the top of the cranium of Leon Trotsky, who takes a good 24 hours to die. It's a very, very brutal death. So Trotsky lives long enough to see... The rise of the gulag, although of course he had limited access to it directly, and there was no there was limited public knowledge of it. Unfortunately, well, per people certainly understood that Stalin was a very evil man, and had certainly tried and executed all his political opponents, and it created an enormous police state. He lives long enough to see that. He lives long enough to see the rise of Hitler. He sees uh, no other revolutions uh, on the horizon at that point, although China is yet to come, correct? Um, in his last years, what, what was he writing about? Uh, what was he thinking? What do we know of that as he saw these world events happen? He, he thought there was going to be a Second World War. He did make a few predictions that were right. He saw the possibility of a Nazi-Soviet pact and Trotskyists tend to praise him uh, in a, an excessive way uh, for this. But actually, quite a number of people foresaw sure. the Second World War, not the, not the Nazi-Soviet pact, to be fair to Trotsky. What Trotskyists fail to remember, though, is that when the Winter War of 1939 to 1940 occurred and the USSR invaded Finland... A fact that is little known... <laughs> right? I mean, that is it's an unbelievable thing. Yeah. Trotsky was in favor of it. Uh -huh. He was in favor of it. And American Trotskyists 
young men, often some of the brightest American intellectuals in the 1930s uh, at that stage, read that this is what Trotsky was recommending. They said, this is Stalinist imperialism. Our great man, Trotsky, has gone over to the other side. And they wrote to him, imploring him to say, no, this, the, right. the invasion of Finland uh, is uh, a neutral country, has, has, is a disgusting, um, a, a disgusting aspect of the alliance, the alliance between Germany and the USSR, and we will not have anything to do with it. And Trotsky shouldn't either. And he, he just came back at them with a vengeance and said, you whippersnappers in New York, you understand nothing. And he gave such a rigid statement of Leninist philosophy, of the theory of the one-party state, the one-ideology state, and such a bland interpretation of Stalin's foreign policy that he more or less broke the Trotskyist movement up in 1939 to 1938. And just, it's just so striking that in Bukharan we saw the same thing. They worship the party. It's yeah. such a strange yes. romantic idea, yeah. right? Yeah, and they worship the USSR. They couldn't think there was any life outside the party and the October Revolution in the USSR. And they couldn't bring themselves to question um, basic, basic aspects of the previous 20 years because it would have been like uh, wishing away their entire lives. Yeah, you were saying this earlier, Russ. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's very, very hard to do. But when, when you're, you know, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, they could have just kept quiet, but the, the, it was worse than that. That ultimately they had this servile attitude to the need for the party always to be right, and therefore that you couldn't be wrong against the party. Was Stalin inevitable? Had no, I don't think so, no, no. I think... Were his, were his acts inevitable? Had, had Trotsky been a better infighter, which he clearly had no taste yes. for? He, he really liked, he liked speaking and writing, and he liked running things, but he didn't like, it seemed to me, one of the lessons of your book is he didn't like the maneuvering uh, that, that is necessary for a, in that one state, one political party state rule. If he had somehow won, or his other allies had been more effective at it relative to Stalin, would he have been a similar man? Would he have turned into a Stalin? What do you think? I, I don't think he would have turned into a Stalin as a personality because there was something deeply uh, disordered about Stalin's personality. I think he had a gross personality disorder. He wasn't mad. He had a gross personality no. disorder. He's a bad man. Uh, yeah, really wicked yeah. man. Thoroughly wicked man. I think if Trotsky had mounted to power in his stead, though, it would still have been a one-party state. It would still have been a, a terror state. It would still have been a one-ideology state. And he would have had to face up to the implausibility of his policies in regard to the people he wanted to rule. And... I just don't believe that he, with his record in the Civil War, when he'd used a lot of brutal force, that he wouldn't have used brutal force on the peasants as well. Now, it might not have been as quite as intensive a terror as it was under Stalin, 
in the countryside. But there would have been what I would call state terror. And he would have had to come out of the closet. He would have had to say, I am in favor of using massive violence in pursuit of my ideological and political and cultural purposes and I'll do this for a generation and I hope that I will change society for the better. It's the same sort of mentality, basically, the same set of attitudes as Lenin had and Stalin had. They, they are blood brothers. Lenin, well, Stalin, Trotsky are blood brothers. And Trotsky at least wrote, maybe he didn't believe it, but at least wrote that that human beings would change. Uh, there was a, a, a huge romance about the malleability of the human yes. enterprise, that um, that given enough time, if another generation or two, people would become used to this, and it would they'd be yeah. better people. Yeah, he did. And there's, there is this idealistic side to Trotsky that stays with him to the end of his days. He really did believe that with this communist revolution, humanity would be transformed. And whereas in the past, the, the, the great writers and the great thinkers had come from the middle or upper classes, when the communist revolution took place, there would be a great liberation of the talents, and there would be hundreds of Darwins, thousands of Aristotles, perhaps millions of Shakespeare's, and it would be a paradise for humankind. So, so that he was a believer. It, it was something close to a religious faith that he that he that he took on instead of his uh, religious faith. Very early in his manhood, in his adulthood, and and stay with him right to the end. He has these flights of idealism. But this is a man who's got blood on his hands. Um, you, this is one of the terrifying things about Soviet history, is, is that some of the bloodiest killers wrote poetry. My guest today has been Robert Service. Thank you for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks very much for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.